Hey, what up? This is Shegs from Shegs and Stuff, and this is part seven of a blog series through the Old Testament book of Esther. Today's blog post is titled, How to Get Leaders to Listen to You and Why Most People Get This Wrong. So today we are in Esther chapter seven, and we are going to focus in on the conversation between Esther and King Xerxes that takes place at this party that Esther is hosting. Now, let's start with this. Um, uh, unless you are your own boss in every single venture you are involved in, you will at some point or another find yourself dealing with different kinds of leaders. It's just inevitable. Um, you'll serve under influential leaders, charismatic leaders, insecure leaders, demagogue leaders, um, what the heck is this guy's problem kind of leaders, or, or I don't really know what I'm doing, but I have mad connections and in industry type of leaders. I mean, just every type of leader you'll encounter. And in each of those instances where you're working with a leader, um, you will need to learn to communicate and convey your ideas and suggestions in a way that produces actionable results. And this is not always going to be easy, especially in those cases where you're working with leaders who may sometimes be threatened by what you have to offer, what you're bringing to the table. And that's exactly where Esther um, finds herself in chapter 7. So in this seventh episode of our blog series through the Old Testament book by the same name, uh, Esther has some life-impacting information that she needs to convey to the king, who also happens to be her husband. Unfortunately, King Xerxes has proven to be um, an unstable, irrational, often drunk, reckless kind of leader. But to make matters worse, his right-hand man, Haman, has more of a murderous approach to leadership and is the main instigator threatening the success of Esther's plan that she's trying to propose to the king. Now, fortunately, God has actually already gone ahead or, or behind the scenes and, and done some behind the scenes work and has actually set the stage for Esther to have the best chance of succeeding. That's what the last chapter and the previous chapter were about. Esther's proposal, however, is still risky and everything hangs in the balance, including her life and the life of an entire nation, the Jews in Persia. So Esther has to get this presentation right as she presents um, her plan to Xerxes. And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 7. So so at the last week's blog, when we in chapter 6, when we last saw Haman, uh, he was shaking in his booths because he just because his advisors had just revealed to him that his plot to annihilate the Jews in Persia was essentially a declaration of war against the God of heaven and earth. And, and, and his reaction tells us that even pagans know not to mess with Jehovah, right? So when we pick up the story at the beginning of Esther chapter 7, Haman, King Xerxes, and Queen Esther are actually at dinner. They're on the final course of a long Persian meal at the second party the queen is hosting. And this moment is, is tense. Uh, just, it's as tense for Haman as it is for Esther, who finally has the opportunity to make her request known after seemingly stalling at the last two opportunities presented to her. Eventually, the king brings up the question again in verse 2 in Esther chapter 7 and says, Queen Esther, what is your petition? 
it'll be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it'll be granted. This is the king's manner of saying, hey, whatever you want. He's not literally offering her half the kingdom, but he's saying, whatever you want to ask, ask. Now, it may seem obvious to us that Esther has just been presented with an opportunity to expose her accuser and stalker, Haman, but consider what she's up against. Haman is a close confidant of the king, and not only that, he's actually sitting a few feet away from her. Like, it is a huge gamble for her to accuse him outright when he could just easily lean over to the king, who's his buddy, and, and whisper some sort of sexist comment like, um, dude, don't even listen to her, man. You know how emotional women get. We'll, we'll handle this later. Just, just tell her you've heard her. Like, Haman could have gone that route, and, and that was risky for Esther. Furthermore, King Xerxes has proven to be an irrational type of leader in past events in the book of Esther, especially when it comes to women on the throne. Remember Queen Vashti from chapter 1? Like she was, she was removed as queen, ironically, at a drunken party, not too different from this one. I mean, they weren't drunk at this party, but it's a lot of alcohol flowing in the beginning of this party in Esther chapter 7. But Esther was removed from the throne for doing something less controversial than what Esther was just proposing. So so this is, for Esther, this is one of those nerve-wracking moments when it would be so much easier, so much safer to just hold her tongue and say, you know what, it, it's nothing, King. It, it's no big deal. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. But that's not who Esther is, right? Remember, she has a whole city of Jews backing her in prayer and fasting, and they've been doing this for the last three days. Esther believes by faith that God has done his part. Now it's her turn to do her part. Yet she still doesn't, you know, she doesn't immediately point an accusatory finger at Haman. Instead, Esther exemplifies for us the first lesson in getting leaders to listen to you and buy into your cause. And it's this lesson number one. Uh, I'll give you a word and I'll explain. The word is tactfulness. Tactfulness. In other words, understand that what you say is not nearly as impactful as how you say it. So listen to how Esther makes her case in um, verse 3 and 4. She says, King, so she's finally presenting her case. She says, King, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed killed and annihilated. I mean, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Now, this is just pure brilliance on Esther's part, right? Like first, note her tone. Like it's not snappish, right? Like it doesn't sound like she is yelling. Rather, it is thoughtful and tactful. Esther plays the wife card to the fool, and makes it work to her advantage. Like, like this is tantamount to my wife starting a conversation with me by saying, um, hey, sweetie, do you want to hear what someone did to your wife today? Like, if my wife ever opened a conversation with that, I guarantee you I'm heading to the basement, I'm getting a baseball bat, and I'm coming to her, and my first question is, who is he, and where can I find him? Right? Like, I would immediately take it personal, just as I'm sure King Xerxes uh, no doubt did when those words first came out of Esther's mouth. Now, Esther's actually not done milking her wifey points yet. The next thing she does is she appeals to his honor 
as her protector. And essentially, verse three and four, she essentially says, listen, uh, honey, if you love me, could you help me, please? Because I don't want to get murdered or slaughtered or butchered, right? And I use those three words purposely. Don't miss the fact that Esther herself uses three different words in verse four to describe her fear of a violent death. Look at verse four. You'll see that. She says that I don't want to be destroyed, killed, or annihilated, right? So this is intentional on her part to try and get a heightened reaction from her husband. I mean, which husband would not immediately jump to his wife's defense here, right? Make no mistake about it. Xerxes, at this point, after hearing Esther, is just boiling over with anger. So think of not only what Esther just did, but also how she did it. Like Esther could have just gotten right to the point, right? She could have just lambasted Haman and and milked the wife thing in a more spiteful manner. She could have said to the king, honey, your wicked friend Haman wants to kill me and all of my people. You you have to do something. Like you signed the edict. Do something. And, And listen, that accusation would have been true, but it may have proven disastrous because it would have appeared that she was actually charging the king himself with ineptitude. But Esther has a phenomenal sense of timing and has thoroughly thought through the most diplomatic way to present her case. And I tell you what, man, we can't help but admire her for this and at the same time seek to emulate um, her actions in our lives. So let's talk about you for a moment. Um, whether you have important information you want to convey to someone in a position of influence who can actually do something about it, or perhaps you have a life-changing cause you want to rally people to, understand that what you have to say is not nearly as impactful as how you say it. I know we live in an age of just speak your mind and, and let whatever happens happen. But listen, when you do that, your message gets drowned in all the noise because everyone's doing exactly the same thing, right? But if you're looking to gain momentum for a cause that's near and dear to you and and gain buy-in, then then you got to learn to convey your information in a way that gains a heightened reaction from your hearers. Hopefully a positive heightened reaction, preferably a heightened reaction from your, a positive heightened reaction from your hearers. So don't just think of what you want to say, but also how to best convey it. Ask yourself this. How can I present this manner, uh, this case, or whatever it is you want to present, how can I present it in a manner that makes them feel like they have a vested interest in its successful outcome? And this kind of approach requires thoughtfulness, tactfulness, attention to detail, patience, man, a keen sense of timing, just as we witnessed in Esther's case. So that's the first lesson in getting leaders to buy into your cause, um, tactfulness. The second one um, I I would label as immediacy, immediacy. And and there I'm speaking of creating a sense of urgency for for why your plan must be accomplished now. Now, this seems apparent in the latter part of Esther's petition in verse four, where she says, Um, King, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. I I think I got to tell you, I think it's amazing to watch how Esther has matured from a timid young girl in chapter two into a master politician here in chapter seven. I mean, she is so cleverly shrewd in her request that she actually puts the king in a conundrum where, where a quick decision must be made. So first off, 
the option of actually being sold as slaves, so it's actually never on the table. Like Haman wants them dead, not not as slaves. So Esther right here is, man, she is brilliantly playing on her husband's emotions. And her case basically amounts to this. She, she's going, uh, honey, I, I know you're super busy and I would not even bother you with something as minor as the enslavement of your wife and her entire race. But what I'm dealing with here is kind of a big deal, all right? I'm, I'm afraid of being murdered. You see what she did there? She sort of ramped things up. She played up the sense of urgency so that her husband had to make a decision. Like enslavement, that can wait. But death, nope. This needs to be fixed by tonight because Haman has built a 75-foot pole in his yard he wants to impale my people on. And when your queen wife presents a case like that, it's kind of hard for you to go, sure, let's talk about it at the next dinner party, right? Like something must be done now, which is what Esther essentially set up. So think of your situation. Is it, is it, is it, is it possible? Is it possible? That the reason there's great ideas and suggestions, is it possible the reason they're not gaining any traction is because you haven't given the influencers, whoever they are, who can actually do something about your plan, is it possible that you actually haven't given them enough reason to believe that your idea must be implemented now? Like, 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 are they still thinking, oh, this can be, like, can you present your idea for a change or whatever it is you want to do in a manner that'll make them go, whoa, we need to get on this now because next week, next month, next year will be too late. You want to create a sense of urgency. Now, there is actually a fine line to this. In other words, while it's helpful to create a sense of urgency, immediacy, you want to be careful that you don't make every single issue or cause an emergency because frankly not every matter demands the same level of urgency this calls for discernment planning prioritization and frankly i'll say it again a keen sense of timing otherwise you will wear people out and you'll start to sound like the boy who cried wolf remember esther actually had two previous opportunities where she could have made some noise and ramped things up about her concerns but in both instances she played down the sense of urgency until this meeting she watched and she waited till the most opportune time. And so we want to learn from Esther that not every situation is an emergency. However, you want to, when, when you are ready to go with the plan, you want to build up that sense of urgency. And that's the second lesson we learned about getting leaders to buy in and listen. Um, the third one really has to do with your ability to show those influencers or leaders who will benefit from your plan. And so this this here I'm talking about community. And what I mean by that is you want to demonstrate how your plan or your proposal or your initiative, whatever it is, how it'll result in the betterment of the lives around you. I think it's important to point out at this at this juncture that that Esther has the option of remaining silent, right? She, she could have chosen to remain silent about this. Like, even if it were uncovered that she too was a Jew, her proximity to the king would have left her unscathed while the rest of her countrymen were slaughtered. I mean, she could also, not only that, she could have just gone to, before the king and pled for just her life. And, and she would have been granted her request while the rest of her countrymen died. But God did not create us to do life in isolation. Esther locked on to this. Rather, God created us to do life in community. Like even the Holy Trinity of God exists in community. There's fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, even though they are one. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, though our stories are deeply personal, our journey is best experienced in the context of community. And that's why it makes no sense for you to say, I'm going to do church at home. God built us to do church with, 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 with other people. And when God adopted us into his family, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, God, think about it, God brought us into a global community of men and women with different stories, but all heading towards the same horizon. So he didn't bring us just he and us. He brought us into a family with other people. Life was designed to be done with people. All of that to say this, that any cause that you are involved in or an idea you're trying to initiate or present to influencers should have or should show some level of benefit for the larger community. In other words, if you are the sole star and the MVP of all your plans and prayers, then you need a new plan and a new prayer. And you will find time and time again that the most effective plans and the most impactful prayers, the ones that truly move mountains in the spiritual realms and in actual society, are kingdom-minded, community-benefiting plans and prayers. And Esther has locked onto this truth in her request. In a moment where she could have just focused on, on her need, man, she, she chose to intercede for her entire nation. Read her request again and, and listen to how she makes her case for the community at large in verse 3 and 4. She says, King, if I found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life, right? That's her first petition. But then she goes, and spare my people. This is my request. And then she goes on to say, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we'd merely been sold as slaves, I'd have kept quiet because no such thing warrants disturbing the king. So you see what she did there. She, she essentially just said, king, this is not just about me. Like, like you have an entire nation of people who are faithful to you and who could be useful to you. So please spare their lives. Man, that, that's just that's just brilliant. So let's turn this to you and, and, and talk about you for a second. Take a look at your plans, whatever they may be. What is it you're proposing? Can you present it in a way that demonstrates how it'll benefit the larger community? Like, who will it benefit and how will it benefit them? What segment of society will gain most from your plan? What basic human needs does it meet? And, and why is that need so urgent right now? Why must it be done now? You see, answering these questions will get you on track to presenting a plan that will result in the betterment of lives around you and will result in influencers rallying to your cause as King Xerxes is about to with Esther. So those are three lessons we can learn from that. Now let's go back to the story. Because from this point on, the rest of the story moves pretty quickly. Like Esther has done such a phenomenal job of making her case that the king himself is now the one yelling. An assault on the king, uh, on the queen, is, is an assault on the king himself. So he's upset. So in verse 5, the king essentially goes, who in the world would dare to threaten my queen? Like, like, where is the man who would do such a thing, right? So, so Esther has done a brilliant job. King Xerxes himself is now the one asking for her to point out the, the guilty party. Now, you know who we haven't heard from yet thus far in the story? Yep, you guessed it, Haman. Like, this dude has clearly had an awful last few days because earlier in the week in this account, he, he, he had to escort his sworn enemy, Mordecai, around town shouting his praises as per orders from the king. And I suspect that up until that moment at Esther's party, where she's going to point to him as the culprit, that Haman has no idea of the whirlwind of trouble that's about to hit him because he never imagined in a million years that the queen was one of the Jews that he was trying to annihilate. 
So picture it if you can. Haman is mid-drink, right? He's sipping on his wine. He's lost in thought, pondering the piece of humble pie he was recently forced to eat on Mordecai's plates when Esther suddenly points to him in the presence of her enraged husband and essentially says in verse 6, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. In other words, king, that's our enemy. It's Haman. And so picture Haman here, right? He is terror-stricken, right? His glass falls to the ground and it dawns on him that his luck in life has finally run out. Like this moment is so tense and it's so shocking that the king himself actually angrily storms out of the palace. No doubt he's pondering his involvement in this evil plot that would have resulted in the death of his queen, but also he's pondering how to deal with Haman. Now, uh, allow me to get all TMZ on you here for a moment. So TMZ is this gossip mail show, whatever. But um, do you recall the guest list of both parties that Esther hosted in chapter five and even in this party? Do you recall that it was only two people who were invited, the king and Haman? Now, I didn't point this out in earlier blog posts because I didn't think it fit there, but I think it fits here. But there is some speculation among some Bible commentators that the king's jealousy may have been aroused by Haman's inclusion in those dinner parties. The king may have been thinking, wait a minute, what makes Haman so special that he gets two special invitations from my wife, right? Now, okay, so Xerxes has like a billion mistresses in his harem, and in fact, hadn't even requested the queen's presence for 30 days. But, like most dumb playboys, it doesn't dawn on Xerxes how much of a treasure Esther is until some other guy starts making a move on her, or at least he thinks another guy is making a move on her. And I point this little gossip mail out uh, to give you some context for what's about to happen next. You see, in verse 7, after the king storms out to the garden, to his palace garden, to ponder what to do next, Haman, realizing that his inevitable death is only minutes away, falls on the queen's feet, groveling and begging for his life. In fact, the scripture points this detail out. It says that they were having, that during dinner, they had actually all been reclining on couches. So these are like giant floor pillows, like in Middle Eastern culture, right? And so if you can picture Haman here, the picture is not a pretty one, right? Because he is at the queen's feet begging. And without any context, it might appear to fresh eyes that Haman was making sexual advances on the queen, right? Unfortunately for Haman, when the king storms back into the room, and he, the king storms back into the room at that exact moment and sees the picture that I just painted for you. Remember, he's already uh, suspicious of Haman, which of course leads him to say in verse eight, "Will he? That's Haman. This is King noticing uh, Haman at Esther's feet. He goes, "Will he even molest the queen while I'm just around the corner?" Right. So 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 God has so worked things out that Haman is really looking like the guilty party, even though he really is guilty. Like this guy is not having a good day. And by the way, if you're starting to feel sorry for Haman, I would strongly direct your attention back to what Haman started himself in Esther chapter three. But whatever the case may be, as soon as the words leave the king's mouth and frankly, all the blood immediately drains from Haman's face, the king's personal guard immediately cover Haman's face and drag him off. All right. So so this is. Um, you've probably seen this in movies a dozen times before. This is that moment when someone is taken captive and they cover their heads with a black bag before leading them off, leading them off to the slaughter. And frankly, that's just what, what's about to happen to Haman. So as they're dragging him out, Harbona, one of the king's seven eunuchs, who, by the way, was actually 
the one of the guys sent to Queen Vashti in chapter one to go get her before she got deposed. Uh, whatever the case may be, Harbona actually points out to the king that Haman has actually already built a killing device in his yard. So remember that 75 foot pole that Haman built to impale Mordecai on? Yep, that was a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea because as soon as Herbona makes the suggestion, the king, still furious at Haman, orders impale him on it. And so Haman's story comes to an end in the book of Esther. Haman, the man who tried to annihilate the people of God, found out that you cannot fight against God. You know, this ending for Haman um, brings to mind the words of God in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, where it says, No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Man, I love that verse. That, that verse is saying God fights our battles. God fights on our behalf for those who oppose us. Now, while this is a sad ending for Haman, Let's face it, it's a happy, successful ending for Esther, for Mordecai, and for all the Jews, right? Esther's tactful approach, her timely call to action, and her caring love for her community, man, it's resulted in a huge win for her, and we celebrate that. Now, you, today, may not be facing the threat of death or genocide of your entire race, but listen, Esther's boldness, her faith, and her clarity of thought and plan in the face of opposition— Man, that, that is worth emulating in wherever you may find yourself, whatever context you may find yourself. Like if you've been praying to God to bless an idea that you have, or you've been or you've been praying for God to bless a plan you want to initiate, keep in mind that like Esther, God may very well have already gone ahead of you to ready the hearts of those who's going, who are going to help you. The next move then is more than likely yours, and your breakthrough may come as you apply these three lessons we just discussed. And so I pray that God would keep you. I pray that God would go ahead of you. And I pray that God would prepare the way for a win for you. And God would give you wisdom on, on tactfulness to know how to say things, not just what to say. That God would give you wisdom in your sense of timing. He would let you know when to be urgent about a need and when to step back. And lastly, God will give you a vision for the community. So may God's peace and the spirit of the living God empower and guide you, fight for you, and keep you. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening.